Hey there, and welcome back to the Sounds Curious podcast. The podcast for you, our adventurous listeners. And listeners, my voice has been gone for the last couple weeks. Nothing like a cold winter to bring out the flu in everyone. So I've been sitting on this interview, um, talk really, a whole evening of discussion that happened here at the Willow's Nest a couple weeks ago in January of 2019. And it was an evening where Dr. Chris Tonelli, a vocal improviser and scholar on the subject, talked about the research he has been doing for his forthcoming book on the subject. Uh, the manuscript is being delivered to Rutledge right about today, in fact, as I am recording this. So it's a really amazing conversation between Chris Tonelli, Gabriel Darmu, and three Berlin-based vocal improvisers, David Moss, Uta Wasserman, and Tomomi Adachi. Now, all of them improvised together on the night of the presentation and talked a lot about their background in the subject. So you get a really great introduction and we're only going to release half of this conversation uh, in today's episode because half of it is already 45 minutes with two really exciting improvisations for you to listen to. So better to get it out into the stream and get you listening and we'll be dropping the second half into the stream next week. Now we've been incredibly busy here at the Willow's Nest at Banshee Media, our parent company and Improvised Alchemy, our performance collective. All of these things which are essentially the work of just a few people, myself included, and it's a lot of projects to keep going. If you enjoy this podcast, and I think certainly today's episode is very enjoyable, then there's a lot you can do to help us get discovered on social media. Now, if you happen to listen to us through iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review. It would help people find us and help us ascend in the rankings. Not that we care hugely, but we really could use the exposure right now, uh, especially as all of our exciting projects centered here in Berlin start taking on the world. So if you can just like us and share us on social media, that's hugely helpful in us getting discovered, especially if you just tell someone, hey, I listened to this crazy podcast, um, but it's some interesting listening and you should too. Um, All of that helps immensely. I realize that there are a lot of podcasts and very few people percentage-wise of the population has really yet to discover them. But if you're a podcast fan, then you know this is an incredible time if you are a fan of audio. There is no end of content, original and otherwise, that is out there right now to be listened to and streamed whenever you like. So if you can recommend us to a friend or share us and like us on social media, that would be amazingly helpful. And of course, throughout the podcast, 
I will let you know more things that you might be able to do in the future, like our Patreon launch is just around the corner. So there's all sorts of ways you can be involved in Sounds Curious. You can support our performances here at the Willow's Nest and our creative works, both publishing and performing through Banshee Media and Improvised Alchemy. As always, all of that information is in the show notes and you can follow us on social media all over the place. The links will be over at BansheeMedia.com. But without further ado, I would like to get to the music and the discussion and the interview that I'm going to present in this next couple of episodes for Sounds Curious because it really introduces itself. Um, Chris Tonelli is the first person who speaks and he will be our host or master of ceremonies for the evening. But everyone, um, all of the vocalists who showed up for the evening, get to really uh, talk about their experiences with this unique and growing art form all over the world. And they had, um, Gabriel and Cristinelli had done a vocal workshop with a number of Berlin folk just a few days earlier. So already that evening, there were fans of Uh, both of these incredible improvising vocalists right in our space. Now, there are some noise pollution uh, things that you'll notice in these recordings, a siren or two, especially when Uta Wasserman is speaking initially. Um, But to cut those things out or to try and filter them out would really have been quite obvious and distracting. And um, the audio quality is relatively good. We were able to Um, grab the stage audio and have a little zoom running so um, it's not so bad uh, because there are a number of microphones on stage a few times they get bopped but I I think I've caught all of those uh, and managed to um, put a limiter on those and keep them from popping in your ears if you listen with headphones to this episode you will definitely get the sense that you were in the room with all of us and um, it was a great night to be in the room so without further ado This is Voices Found, celebrating 65 years of extra-normal singing, in which you will actually hear some fabulous extra-normal singing. And I'll come back at the end to um, make a few more announcements. In the meantime, enjoy Dr. Cristinelli and this incredible evening at the Willow's Nest in January of 2019. Um... It's a really special night for me because uh, about five and a half years ago, I started um, my postdoctoral work uh, with the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation, uh, researching histories uh, and theories, uh, theorization uh, of improvised vocal music. And it's been a, a wild ride. Um, it uh, has uh, brought me uh, to speak with um, dozens and dozens of improvising vocalists and uh, to many different archives, uh, collecting histories uh, around this music. And I have two weeks left before my book is due, uh, so it's not final yet. So if there's any vocalists in the room that want their name in it or that hasn't uh, spoke to me yet, let me know, and we'll see if we can squeeze you in there. Um, but the, the project began six years ago uh, with a, an interview uh, with David. Uh, we brought him over uh, to St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, where he performed uh, and led workshops and gave a keynote talk 
at a, uh, a choral festival that goes on in St. John's, Newfoundland. And if, if you don't know St. John's, Newfoundland, it's worth checking out. They have a festival there called Sound Symposium. It's a really lovely place for experimental music in Canada. Uh, and David was super uh, generous, uh, gave me four hours of his time, and we have a 54-page interview that's actually part of this project that uh, will be published on a companion website. So the book um, will have uh, short excerpts from some of the people I've interviewed, uh, but there will be a companion website that goes with it that will have a lot of material uh, that I've collected uh, over the past six years. Um, it's, it's a great joy to, to have uh, David Moss, uh, Uta Wasserman, Tamomi Adachi, and Gabriel Dermu uh, all here because they'll all be represented in the book here. Thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs> Tamomi uh, is the only person that I met before the project began. Um, Tamomi and I met in 2004, uh, so I've been tracing his work for a long time and it was uh, uh, really wonderful uh, to be able to interview him at length, though, as part of this project, and uh, to uh, receive him uh, in Guelph, Ontario, where he gave a talk on uh, homemade instruments and telepathy and improvisation. Uh, and uh, and we, uh, we went from Chicago to Guelph. I went and picked him up for that talk, and we stopped at the Waffle House in the way, as you can see there. There's a few pictures here from uh, <laughs> <laughs> moments from the research. Uh, and Gabriel Darmu is someone I met through the, the project. Um, uh, there's a, a vocalist in Toronto who runs an improvising choir called the Element Choir, which is a really fascinating and lovely institution. Um, and her name's Christine Duncan, and she first mentioned Gabriel's work to me, uh, and so I went to Montreal to speak with him. Uh, and, uh, and that was a really wonderful uh, element of the project, just meeting amazing people. Um, and then meeting them again later uh, is fantastic. And Uta, um, there are so many vocalists um, that I just haven't had the chance to talk to. Uh, and so tonight is actually my first time uh, meeting Uta and speaking about her work. So uh, as part of the discussion element of tonight, uh, I will uh, ask her some questions that I haven't had the chance to ask her yet and learn more about her history. Of course, I, I, I know her, uh, her recordings well uh, and uh, a bit about her biography, but I, I look forward to finding out <laughs> more about you tonight. Um, but to start, I thought it would be great uh, if uh, all five of us uh, could improvise together, um, and, uh, and then we'll go into some discussion and some reading uh, after that. Um, I just apologize that we're so cramped up here. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best, and maybe we, we won't use the microphones for this opening, uh, unless you want to. If you want to take a microphone, that's fine, but uh, uh, <laughs> we will start with an improvisation. Should I mute this, then? Yeah, I think you guys, if your microphone is on, you just need to turn on here. How we can manage oh, this space. Do we do acoustic? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Do we acoustic? We do acoustic. But acoustic. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Simple. Yeah. It's really crowded. Yeah. I don't know where it stops. It's probably not. Just other things there are. No, don't do that. Can we use the mic?
chapters and a bunch of interview excerpts.
the first chapter deals with the 1960s uh, mostly, and it deals with how uh, five female vocalists uh, that I write about, uh, Anik Nozati, Maggie Nichols, Yoko Ono, uh, Jean Lee, and a vocalist named Christine Jeffrey, uh, all had highly interdisciplinary practices that led them to develop unconventional vocal practices. If all of these vocalists hadn't been working across uh, different media, across different disciplines, their vocal practices wouldn't have emerged in the way they emerged. So that first chapter deals with that aspect um, of the history of this music. And Uta, you said, we're saying that that's part of your origin, that you're uh, yeah, from an interdisciplinary background. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I mean, singing was from childhood on a big part of my life because in my family we just did a lot of singing. But um, I actually wanted to study music. I was playing the flute that time in orchestras and bands and so on. And um, uh, I, but I didn't want to study the classical way. And in Germany, the music academies were very conservative at that time. And, uh, I'm talking about uh, 1979, 80. And um, uh, so, um, and I've seen actually a performance by Laurie Anderson mm. when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I really loved her work, and um, I thought I want to do performance art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, so I ended up at art school, actually. Yeah. You know, and uh, in art school I found my way to music. I started singing at art school. I got in touch with the work of uh, Dimitrios Fatos and Herbert Mong, Amanda um, Gallas, you know, mm -hmm. people. And um, we worked with sound, with um, media, with on performance art and sound art related context. We did music festivals also. Phil Corner was teaching there. And I was working mainly with artists from Fluxus Movement like Henning Christiansen. I uh, worked with him a lot. And so, you know, I, I kind of started doing music at art school and I worked on instruments for my voice. <coughs> I'm actually uh, now working again on those old ideas with speakers attached to my body and body and metal plates and I would sing through the speakers and the metal would vibrate and I would amplify this and work with feedback through these metal plates and it was very gestural work also and I made a gong that resonated with my voice and sang through metal springs and, and so on so um, and I think yeah so in that way I'm very influenced by my, my thinking is very influenced by the visual arts also because for a while I was doing a lot of collaborations with composers also who would <coughs> write pieces for my voice. So I found my way also into the new music scene, art scene, music scene, then improvising and experimental music scene. But um, um, in my own pieces, um, I think more about the space of the sound, the space inside the body, the, the how, how I project the space, you know, the sound in space, so it's more like thinking of this kind of sound sculpture, or the voice as a sculptural mm -hmm. thing. And also, um, I mean, I do this project, Voice Extensions, where <coughs> I sing through different kinds of resonators and sing with objects. It's also this thing, where does the body, or where does the self stop, and where is the outside? Mm -hmm. Is my voice inside my body? Is it in the object, or is it in the space, or is it all three? Mm -hmm. Or is the audience also resonating with it? So this, these questions came up and I think that's strongly influenced by thinking of the arts maybe or you know by this interdisciplinary uh, thing. 
Yeah, it's, it's great that you brought up uh, sculpture in your answer <coughs> um, because one of the interesting figures of that list that I mentioned earlier uh, that's talked about a lot in this first chapter is uh, a singer named Christine Jeffrey that she only worked for a, a short period of time uh, in the London free improvising scene. Um, two very established singers in that scene, Phil Minton and Maggie Nichols, uh, two very foundational singers mm -hmm. for this practice. Um, when I was interviewing them and asked them, well, when you were first using these kinds of sounds in the London free improvising scene, how did your collaborators uh, react? And they said, well, they, they were completely prepared because Christine Jeffrey was already doing it. And I had never heard her name uh, at that point. Um, I tracked her down at a, a, a monastery in uh, the south of Scotland and went there to interview her. Uh, and that's one of the really interesting uh, interviews in this book because she's someone that, that stopped practicing and she talks a little bit about why she stopped practicing. But she came to the practice as a sculpt sculptor, was unhappy with the, the static nature of sculpture and the fact that the process wasn't reflected in the finished product and was uh, led to voice from that frustration. Um, so very interesting that sculpture uh, is part of your thinking about this work as well. Um, you uh, you went and studied at University of California San Diego yeah, singing. Yeah. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, why you decided to do that and what that experience was like? Oh uh, yeah, um, that was interesting chain of things happening because you know um, I met Daniel Sharp, the philosopher in, um, and musicologist in France, in when I was a young student, and um, there I you know it was like paradise at his house. We would listen to a lot of experimental music. We were there. With I was friends with Christoph, with his son, mm -hmm. and we were a small group of students, and we would be invited there and just listen for days to experiment music okay. you know, and have an exchange. <laughs> so through Danielle, I knew about um, uh, the University of Alvin Lucier, Vesseline, yeah. I think it is, and um, also about the Center of Music Experiment at UCSD. Yes. And I, I knew about him a bit about the history of UCSD. And then a few years later, I, I was suggested, the art school suggested me to apply for a grant with the DAAD mm -hmm. to do one year studies outside Germany or postgraduate studies. I finished my, my studies then. And um, <coughs> I applied and I got it because of this crazy situation that I had to go to Bonn. There were all painters exhibiting. And I did a piece for voice, flute, and microphones on the keys of the flute. And I, put up speakers on, you know, I, it was just so different what I did. It was this performance piece of flute and microphones and breath and voice. So it really did stick out and I think that was kind of the reason why I got it probably because it's just so different. <laughs> and um, then actually I was proposed to go from the art school wanted me to go to China. And in a way, I, you know, because I was studying visual arts and I really wanted to explore more music and um, more, yeah, I, I just, in my head, UCSD was, UCSD was in my head, and also Alvin Lucy's work from, from being in OT. Um, and then, then, yeah, I applied at UCSD, and then I got the grant, and it was really, um, I had a very, very interesting year there, because I was in the visual arts and music department, and I met lots of really interesting artists and musicians there. So. Yeah. There was an, um, an ensemble there uh, called the Extended Techniques Ensemble. Yeah, Phil Larson and... Yeah. yeah, did you have some interaction? Were they active while I, you were there I or, that, or would it have been Phil after Larson, their time? But yeah. they were uh, before my time. Yeah. 
but I met Phil Larsen and we worked together and we were also then years later I also met composer Chaya Chanu in there and she oh, wrote yes, yeah. a few pieces for my voice yes. like a solo piece and then um, in uh, 2000 at the Munich Art Biennale we did Pnima an opera by Chaya and also Phil Larsen was involved in, okay. in this opera and yeah with Phil Larsen and I lost touch with him but have you met him also? Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, so after that first chapter that's on uh, interdisciplinary women and experimental voice, uh, there are uh, short interview excerpts with Christine Jeffrey, with Phil Minton, and with Maggie Nichols. Um, and then the second chapter is called Music Technologies and Vocal Liberation. And the idea in the, in the second chapter is I'm talking about um, different um, ways that uh, electronic sound and different technologies uh, have change the way that certain singers sing, especially singers, uh, of course, in the scene. Uh, I talk a little bit about the fact that the, the tape recorder really transformed the practice of the ultra lettrous poets in the 1950s. Um, and then I talk a lot about David's work um, because uh, David has these interesting uh, stories to tell about uh, the ways that uh, encounters with failure of technology uh, and encounters with the, the rise of the sampler, especially, uh, changed the way that other people heard his singing. Uh, do you want to share with the, the group uh, some of those stories? <laughs> and, and maybe actually, we, uh, is Renee here? Uh, can, I think just for the sake of the documentation, I'll ask the speakers to speak into the mic at this point. Is, can sure, we turn yeah, these mics on? Oh, they are live. Okay, sorry. I'll just turn it around then. <laughs> Thanks, Renee. Excellent. Well, yeah, so, <laughs> technology. Since <laughs> 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 so, so it's the technology chapter. <laughs> I wrote a song a while ago that is titled, the title of the song is A Spoon is Technology. And uh, I think, for me, anyhow, the concept of technology as the, uh, the transfer of power is kind of a, a helpful uh, concept for what technology is, um, which means just what you needed to mean in a certain way. Okay, so my first transfer of power happened a long time ago when, when I was a pure acoustic percussionist. I started as a percussionist, a drummer, jazz, and then improvisation. <clears throat> and I got a phone call uh, that I was requested to perform a solo concert uh, in St. Louis. I was living in Vermont. And I'd never played a solo concert in my life. I was 23, uh, and I had six months to prepare a solo concert. Uh, and I started to practice for a solo concert. It was very frustrating because as a drummer, at the time, your technology was limited to, sh to the drum set as, as a technology, as a transfer of hand power to sound power. To, mm. The drum set had very short rever reverberation, uh, sustain. So if you made a sound, boop, bark, boop, boom, cat, kum, and the cymbal was your biggest sustain, delay sound. And unless you took both your hands and played the cymbal forever, you weren't going to have a sustained sound. You would have no, no way to make a sustain. So I found this a little bit frustrating, thinking of playing for an hour or a solo and not having any sound last more than three seconds. Mm. It seemed a little bit... Uh, strenuous <laughs> or boring at the same time. So, um, so I thought, what can I do? And at the same time, I had started to use my voice 
to supplement the sounds I can make with my hands, or to uh, to double the sounds I can make with my hands, all through the drum set, and then split the sounds of the drum set from my hands so that my hands would be going very quickly, and my voice would be going a sustained sound. So I began to, to develop these different ways of, of uh, expanding the possibilities of a drum, drums, but still I could, I could only hold my sound for, for a few seconds after I was drumming. So I asked a friend to, who played guitar if there was any way he could help me. He said, oh yes, well we have this new piece of technology, it's called, what was it called, I forgot his name. Echoplex. Echoplex, <laughs> yes. The famous Echoplex was a, was a uh, tape loop delay. It was real tape, real tape recording tape inside this crazy box. And the tape went around like this, and you could see it move around. And, and you moved these big levers like a, like a, like that. And it got longer, and you did like that, and, and the leg got shorter. And I said, wow, this is just what I need, man. I'm going to like use my microphone and sing with this thing. And he said, well, I don't know. I only did it with guitar. Let's see what happens, you know. So I put my microphone on, and wow, you know, like infinite, infinite sound, you know, like drone forever, you know, this is, this is a long time ago, this is, um, this is 1973, you know, this is a long time to have forever drone, a lot, that was a long time ago. So anyhow, so I said, oh, this is great, this is perfect for my solo concert. So I'm rehearsing with this thing, I love it, I'm making sounds, I'm learning a lot, I'm in, uh, and then one day there was a, a in, in the farmhouse in the country where I lived, there was a big thunderstorm outside, and as I was practicing, uh, lightning hit nearby, and I, all the lights in the house went out, and there was a big spark, and the echoplex burned out. Oh. Yeah, oh, indeed, oh. And it was, uh, it was my friend's echoplex. It wasn't my echoplex, you know, and it, it's, it cost like $400. That was a lot of money. And, uh, and it was like burning. It was like burning echoplex. And I said, oh, shit, you know. First of all, what's interesting was, I was now dependent, I was hooked. I was addicted to this echoplex. I could not concede now after two, after two months of making a solo without this technology. Mm. It had sucked me into its possibilities in some way, in some way it had paralyzed my brain in a, beautiful, in a way that it had also given me ideas. It's my first encounter with this double, double edge of technology, what it gives and what it takes away. And, uh, well, I didn't tell my friend. I took it to a. I took it to a. I think I took it to an electrician who like puts lights inside houses. And I said, "Can you fix this thing?" You know. And he said, Rrr. And uh, finally, we got it sort of fixed, and it, it sort of worked. And I used it, and it sort of was like unreliable after that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would stop, and then I would be left alone. And this I found beautiful. This was the solution to addiction. That suddenly your supply is not there anymore. <laughs> you know, it might come back. It's not like forever, but. You're lost for a minute. And when you're lost with the technology, you have to have a, your own, uh, as a performer, you have to have your own movement that is, that, that is going, that is not waiting for anything or anybody. And so therefore, in some way, I was making a duo with this object, with this echoplex. And if it stopped, I didn't need it anymore. I was happy when it, when it was there. So this was the first big accident and encounter uh, with technology that changed the way I think. You know? I focus on this chapter, let, not, not at all actually, on, on vocalists processing their voices, but on ways that 
uh, technologies get into the way we use our voices without technology um, and also the way it gets into reception. The other story that, that I, I drew from our interview from there is the story of, of how people in the New York scene uh, felt about your singing before and after the sampler, as you, you told it. Can you share that story as well? I don't know if I, if I remember the exact story. You're probably lying about the story that yeah, I tell you. Yeah, um, a lot of untruth. <laughs> uh, you mean about the emotionality of the voice? Or the yeah, provider's exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. You're always going to encounter this. It will always happen in various scenes. As, scenes develop, as a scene, a music scene, or an art scene develops, it includes various things that it feels identifies with it and that take it further, and it excludes certain things that it thinks are, are either traitorous uh, or uh, or betrayers, or uh, unhelpful, or old-fashioned, or wrong. So it's a, it's a, it's again, it's a double-edged thing. You inco incorporate what you love, and you discard what you think is not you. And um, in the scene I was in, which was in what we called the, uh, noise music, uh, we were very proud in 1980 that we made the most abstract sound you could ever make and changed it as quickly as you could make it, unidentifiable, non-genre, non-quoting, non-human uh, non sound. And this was, this was our thing, you know? This is what we were very proud of in a strange way. And so our sound was extremely, but not, you can't make it with the voice. as fast changing as you could make it, and as dry, in a sense, as you could make it. No coding, no, 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 like a, no, no uh, commercial coding, no reverb, no delay, no effects, even though effects were not possible in 1980, 1981, it was possible to have effects. No, not, 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 none of that. Acoustic instruments, and when the first electronic instrument got into our, Thing. It was a real, real fight. It was this guy who played, um, who played uh, uh, cassette machines. And he had like eight cassette machines, and he put cassettes in and out of the ca cassette machines. And everyone was like, kind of angry with him, you know, because like, what's on the cassettes? It could be music. We don't want music. <laughs> It could be someone else's music. We don't want it. You can't play that shit. In our, we are pure, you know? So, so this guy said, no, no, no. It's only sounds that are recorded from like a, a building falling down and a car hitting a, hitting a, a light telephone pole and a something going like that. It's all these sounds. And now they're on cassettes and I can mix them and do all this stuff. With, oh, that's okay. So, so, so at that point, at that point, I had been singing for a few years, but... I had stopped singing because in this group, the voice was considered emotional. And emotions were not wanted. No one said your emotions are not wanted, but it was clear in this group that emotions were not wanted. It would contaminate the purity of an abstract music. It would lead to feeling, <laughs> which it does, or could. And, uh, or it would demonstrate feeling. Or feeling would be so strong that people would look at one person instead of the group. Feeling was too powerful for this abstract collection of musicians. So I stopped singing 
and only played the drums for a long, for quite a while. And finally I realized that this was, in a certain way, killing me. That it was not the direction I could go in. I learned a lot from this school of sound making and was happy to play with all these great players, a lot of whom people know and are well known now and all that. But, but singers who sang emotionally, such as Shelley Hirsch, who was in part of that scene, and uh, me and uh, any, any other one you can think of from New York, were, weren't welcome. It wasn't al allowed to be a vocalist. So this was a, this was a big deal. And, and when I really wanted to sing, I had to leave this group. I had to sort of pull out from this group and create my own music with my voice and my drums in the way that I wanted, which I didn't think was like, like, like terribly emotional. It was just what I wanted to do, but it involved the voice. You know. Is that the story? Yeah, and, and you were saying just that, that once um, the sampler got established and Kristen Markley uh, was around, uh, that that changed drastically. Yeah, that was another thing. Like, uh, but, but I tried to, actually, as I think of it now, like at that time, long time ago, the sampler was just coming, the keyboard sampler was coming in, into play, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a big discussion, interesting discussion about the seaboard, keyboard sampler. The keyboard sampler was built by industry. The industry, someone in the industry of Casio or Roland or whatever, decided what would be inside the sampler. I mean, you couldn't put sounds in there yourself at the beginning. So who decided? I mean, what right did they have to tell us what, what 120 sounds should be inside this machine, you know? Um, uh, there was a question, could, could we get, get along with this? So it actually needed a, a player, a person, to come along who could warp this machine in a certain way so that it sounded like it shouldn't sound. So it could play it fast enough, odd enough, touch it in a way they were all slightly able to be screwed up. Every of these, all these early keyboards could be really played weirdly if you figured out what to do with them, you know, which was not the way they were supposed to sound. So when people came along who could do that, when a, when a person who played LPs like Christian Markley came along and cut up the records into 50 pieces and glued them back together and then played them, then suddenly, uh, oh, uh, pre-made pre music was okay. It was personal or it was allowed. It was different. Yeah, and as you stated in the interview, you said, my voice all of a sudden wasn't emotional anymore, it was a sample. Yeah, my, and, heard it. yeah. in a strange way, yeah, like again, like I said before, like, suddenly my voice became something else. They heard it differently. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uta, Tomomi, Gabriel, is, do you have any stories about uh, the way that technologies have informed your singing? Yeah, I mean, I just say one thing. But I do work with technology also, and then. But but even um, when I sing just with the microphone acoustically, I'm kind of influenced by electronic music because I I like my voice to sound kind of alien or alienated, so almost like having electronic filters inside my body, like filters how you put your tongue, like, so like <coughs> these can. Um, Stuff like that, where you are, you know, just one yeah. example. But yeah. that's kind of influenced from this idea of filters, uh -huh. and you can do it with your body, basically. So, yeah, that's one point. The other question I think you mean is how using electronic devices changes your. Um, yeah, and, and then when, for me, it's like when I. Um, work with these kind of homemade electronics I do, it frames 
it kind of um, frames what I can do with it. I go to the limits or, you know, it's almost, it, it affects um, the way I improvise or compose because it gives a framework. Like this gong I'm, I'm working with, um, I, um, I, it's like a, in, it's vibrating with my voice, so it catches certain resonances, for example, so I can't do everything. You know what I mean? It's, it's uh, forcing me to tune in with the electronics of the objects and going to the limits. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so actually I started with electronics yeah. and voice came later. And so the, when I was working with electronics, my first uh, interest <coughs> was uh, how to process the sound in real time. And then I found my voice. So it, it is my some priority was actually the beginning was electronics and you know for example it's it was interesting so you were talking about emotion because when i use for example i really hate basically i really don't like any kind of vocal music <laughs> because it's too emotional for me and but at the same time it's the issue is when you speak something so is it that your voice is belong to you or outside and probably it is a little bit too much inside. But for example, if you use electronics, you use effector, so just pitch shift or delay. So suddenly you feel your voice is actually belonging to outside of you. And I really like this process. Yeah. And this is why really I really concentrated on my voice. And then it's the same story. So it, Okay, still I use a lot of electronics for my voice, but at the same time, if I don't use electronics, so the same thing is happening with my voice. So I can somehow alienate, is it correct? The, my voice, so I want to, I, I, I can put yeah. my voice to outside. And it's somehow the, the process was, uh, so I learned that process with electronics and I can make the same sense of my body and hearing and to make sound, so without electronics. Mm -hmm. And you know, and at the same time, so I'm very interested in, for example, gesture and also it is a connection. It's this, I, my hand is moving like this. What is it? And what is the connection with my voice and this? And you can, I can see this. And also this electronics, for example, I'm using a lot of sensors and electronics can put my gesture outside from So I can remove and take off my gesture from my body. And this is a very, very interesting thing. And then again, I can start thinking about emotion. Emotion is what you find from me. It's not necessary to be inside me. And it's quite interesting effect of emotion. Mm -hmm. And now, actually, I start to deal with emotion. If you feel my performance is very emotional, it's very, very fine for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. There's, since since I, I, I have been um, singing uh, as a, a free improviser since uh, 2000, a lot of the questions in the interviews have to do with the experiential states that it affords. And that, that alienation is something I can relate to mm -hmm. as well. Gabriel, uh, did, did you want to add anything? Um, am I on? You're not turned on. Yeah, it might so have mute yourself. Maybe self-muted. It's an issue of uh, technology. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good one. I think it's off. I don't know. Mayb
have this now. Yeah. You can have these. <laughs> I can't handle so much technology. No, um, I think my, my um, I'll start with maybe present and future, which is I see technology as, uh, for me, it's collaboration because I'm not, I don't have the, I don't, yeah, I've not developed these the skills in this way of, um, of thinking. So most things I've done with electronics were, you know, the same way you, we, you collaborate with other musicians, I think, uh, Electroacoustics and musicians working, uh, and artists, you know, working with technology is has become like a, a norm in some sort. So for me, it's more this, it's part of the the, the mix. But uh, I do remember phases where I was, uh, I don't know, maybe sensitively stubborn and didn't really want to have my voice treated because mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe similarly to what you were saying, um, I, I mean. Especially when I was beginning and younger, when I, when myself, I was like uh, finding all the, the possibilities of, of the voice just as it, it um, on, on its own without uh, modification. It was I felt like if, if then I would have uh, treatment, then it would take away the kind of like oh he can do that, which was important to me at some point. You know, it was kind of uh, uh, showing off <laughs> a little bit of, of, of what the, the voice could do. So I think that was, a, um, yeah, it was a mix of being stubborn and, 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 and being developing things and, and, and kind of, um, yeah. yeah. The chapter starts with a caveat that you see in a lot of recordings of, of free improvised vocal music, including uh, Phil Mitten's uh, 1980 album, uh, A Donut in One Hand. Um, and it says very explicitly on the album, no sound on this album has been processed. All sounds are made simultaneously by one live vocalist. Mm -hmm. And I, I start the chapter with those quotes because I, I explain that despite the fact that that may be true, of course, electronics have shaped um, these practices and these voices. Um, so let's, let's have a bit more improvisation now. David, would you like to uh, do your, your solo improvisation now, your solo piece? It's not a pure improvisation. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of a kind of put together, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot lately about um stay right there. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about uh memory in that um, a lot of the questions and some of the answers that we have about these topics are connected to what we, what we remember and how we remember and what, how memory allows us to have pleasure with certain things, certain feelings, certain body, bodily feelings, certain, how can I say it, electrical feelings in our head which are memories, certain muscular movements which are memories, certain experiences in our lives which people and places which are generally very quickly memories and the idea that music is freely improvised from nothing, from fantasy is kind of a strange idea because it all comes from 
your experience, my experience, my history, what I know, what I've done, like taking a walk in a in a village, and you know, you go to Italy, you finally go to one on a vacation, you wander through the hillsides, and you come across a abandoned village, stone wall. Something you never thought existed. Stone wall, hot sun, cat jumps up on the stones. Touches a leaf of time on the stone, crushing. The leaf of time, smell comes out, rain comes down, smell goes away, and the hot sun comes back, warms up the stone. In a small abandoned village, somewhere in the stone, and you remember that as a prime. I'm experience. Over there, animal jumps up. You can see his paw going across the stone. Waves of heat coming up. setting up my table of electronics, hard metal objects on top of a table top. I have to think of it like they're stones or like they once were touched by an animal. Room with a cat, smell, leaves of time. It's a memory thing triggers the whole story. After that beautiful improvisation, or as David Moss says, not quite improvisation, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Give us a chance to digest that first half and uh, listen again to some of that great music. And we'll be back next week with the other half of this evening of Voices Found, a celebration of 65 years of extra normal singing. And that was certainly some extra normal singing. 
I find this particular form of improvisation to be incredibly emotionally relevant. The human voice is such an evocative instrument for our ears. It's truly exceptional. So I want to thank Dr. Cristinelli, Gabriel Darmu, all of the Berlin-based vocalists, uh, Uta Wasserman, David Moss, and Tomomi Adachi. And we will catch you next week for your next episode of Sounds Curious. See you then.